the more companies can model our behavioral biases, the more they can use them in catching us in moments when we're inattentive or when we're not necessarily focused enough on choosing the right credit card, the right mortgage, or any of these products. From the MIT Sloan School of Management, this is Data Made to Matter. I'm Neil Hartman. A finance professor uses big data to hold the personal finance industry accountable to the people it serves. Antoinette Shore is a professor of entrepreneurship and finance here at MIT Sloan. I spoke with Antoinette about prolific credit card offers, shoddy financial advisors, and how what's good for the consumer can also be good for the market. Antoinette, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Antoinette, you've been looking into personal finance and the credit card offers we all get in the mail. I know I get at least a dozen a month. What's with this? Why do I get so many? That's a very good question. Um, the short answer is that uh, one um, way how people shop for credit card is that they just look into their mailbox mm -hmm. when they are about to, to need credit. And so the banks know this, and so they keep on sending you letters because lots of people will kind of shop for a credit card when they need it. Um, and that means that we get so many all the time. Mm -hmm. But there's a second dimension, which is that the credit cards are also trying to figure out what type of offer is interesting to you. And people, of course, vary in what type of credit they need sure. and what kind of features they need. Even the same bank sends you many different letters. Ah. So you've conducted a study looking at over a million of these card offers. First of all, where did you get so many card offers? <laughs> Good question. Um, actually, we got it from a consulting firm called Compromedia that collects these. Um, in fact, what they do is they have people on staff who collect uh, months by months all their financial mail in their mailbox and send it to this company. And then the company scans it into PDF and has it um, available for anyone who's interested. And who is typically interested are the other banks who are actually monitoring each other by looking at this data. Interesting. Most people can't even make it through one of these credit card offers. How did you get through a million? Yeah, lots of headache. No, no. <laughs> Actually, what we did is uh, we wrote algorithms with uh, big data techniques mm -hmm. and optical uh, character recognition software to pass through all these very complex mailers. So we read, obviously, a bunch of them. We figured out what are the main features of these type of offer letters, mm -hmm. and then we searched for them automatically. So I've always assumed that I'm getting the very same credit card offers as everyone else. Is that correct? Well, actually, that's not the case. But how would you know, right? You only see your own ones. Right. But what we find in our study is that financial institutions and credit card companies really target different people very differently. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing that most people are aware of is that, say, people with higher FICO score, meaning higher credit rating, right. get better offers, meaning lower interest rates, than people with low FICO, right? But what we um, look at in our study is that it goes way beyond just your credit rating. Mm -hmm. So what we found is that, um, say, people who are less educated, which often is seen as a proxy for being financially less literate or less sophisticated, mm -hmm. get very different offers from people who are very educated. And in particular, we find that people who are financially less literate and less educated tend to get offers that have more hidden features or shrouded attributes 
um, and also get more card offers that rely on late fees, over-limit fees, and things basically that come at the end, right? Things that you might not be so aware of when you're shopping for a card, because maybe when you're shopping for the card, you're only looking for the APR, teaser rate, or, you know, the mm -hmm. front matter of the card. So it sounds like people who may be less educated are actually getting credit card offers that are far more complicated. That's right. I mean, that's what we seem to find in our study, that the offers that are offered to less educated people rely in their pricing much more on these additional fees, mm -hmm. late fees, over-limit fees, maybe, you know, default APRs that switch on once you had a default. Wow. Right. While... People that are more educated, their cards seem to rely much more on the quite um, straightforward features. Like, you know, they are paying an annual fee and they're paying an interest rate, mm -hmm. but they are relying much less on these late fees and over-limit fees. So you've been looking at credit card offers that spanned over a decade, uh, from 1999 to 2011, including the global financial crisis in 2008. Did the types of credit cards that were offered evolve through that time? Yes, um, we definitely see that there is evolution. And there's two types of evolution. One is just that the offers became much more fancy, flashy, and sophisticated <laughs> over time. So, you know, if you look at the early 2000s, most card offers that were sent to you hardly had any photos, any fancy, right. you know, cover um, and so on. It was just text and explaining to you what the card is. But that changed quite a bit over the last 15 years. And so now they look like virtual pieces of art, no, with lots <laughs> of photos and things like this. But of course, we also find that when there is so much more emphasis on the advertising part, the information gets all pushed to the back. Ah. Um, because in the U.S., as a credit card issuer, you are subject to what is called Truth in Lending Act, right. which means that when I send an offer to a customer, I have to explain all the features that are there, all the important ones, and I cannot lie, of course, about what I'm offering. Of course. But then what happens is that this information is always on the last page, um, and the more enticing parts of the card are on the first page. So are we finding with a more visual approach to credit card offers that people, in fact, are reading less and less of the actual printed information? I'm quite worried about this, mm -hmm. right? That, that people indeed are just reading the parts that are enticing that, you know, might make them actually take on more credit. Right. Um, and they are not even aware of the fact how expensive in the end that credit is going to be. The other thing, as an aside, there's actually uh, some studies now by consumer advocate groups that suggest that the average credit card offer is written at a level of language that's much higher than the average person reads. Um, so, you know, it's very legalese and, and quite high levels of language, while, you know, maybe the average person who takes on a credit card in their day-to-day -day, um, interactions don't even speak at that right. level. So the information becomes more complicated and chances are much greater that people aren't going to read it or understand it if they do. Right. That's, that's a real concern. Yeah. So even though credit card companies are manipulating us, we still rely on them, probably more and more, for much of our daily commerce. I know I use mine for just about everything. What's your advice? How can I tell if I'm getting a good credit card offer? Should I read the fine print? Uh, the answer is definitely you should. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, I can't, you know, absolve you from that. In <laughs> fact, I would typically say 
the best thing you can do is to throw away all the glossy stuff at the beginning of your credit card offer and literally just look at the last page because on the last page of an offer, there's something called the Schumer box. This mm -hmm. was sponsored by Senator Schumer. Um, and this actually regulates all the information that are important about a card, like okay. the APR, your late fees, you know, all the other fees. They have to be in one place and in that Schumer box. And so actually the best thing you can do is to collect a few credit card offers right. and then compare them. And unfortunately, people don't do that so much or right. they don't do it enough. And so while you're right that the credit card companies obviously are sophisticated and are targeting people based on what they think is most enticing to people. Um, people sometimes are also their own best enemy because they are not shopping enough, right? right? And they could help themselves more if they were more conscientious in how they take on um, credit. So I should, no should ignore all the fancy pictures and really focus on the Schumer box at the back of the offer. I agree. I think that would be smart. So you've also been looking at another side of personal finance, financial advice for retirement. There are so many sources for it these days. Where are most people getting their retirement advice? It's obviously a very confusing and complicated world, right. retirement savings. And you have so many choices nowadays from the thousands of different mutual funds that you can invest in and annuities and, and everything, right? And so people are looking for advice in many different places. Mm -hmm. And what we found is, uh, actually even industry studies have found that people ask friends, obviously, they ask their social networks, but they also rely heavily on financial advisors. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they also lo look at industry reports, but those kind of things to a lesser degree. So what we realized is that financial advisors can play a very important role in helping people make choices. But then, of course, it also matters whether you have an advisor who gives you good advice and who works in your best interest. Right. So you've been looking into the quality of financial advice that people receive. How did you study this and what data do you use? Yeah, so this was uh, an interesting study. Um, <laughs> and it was the first time I did something that is called an audit study. Mm. So what we did there is we work together um, with hiring, if you want, people who impersonated customers <laughs> who we sent to different banks and, and other financial institutions mm -hmm. that provide financial advice. Um, and just so that you're not worried, I mean, we didn't hire MIT undergrads <laughs> to impersonate <laughs> retirement savers. Actually, they are very uh, professional companies that do that for a living meaning, you know, kind of they audit different banks and different financial institutions. Right. Because again, this actually a way how banks make sure that the service they are providing across many different branches has the same quality okay. standard. And so we worked with those. So was the advice better or worse than you expected? Um, yeah, unfortunately, the advice was very mixed and often was not ideal in the sense we would hope for. So let me explain to you what, what I mean sure. with this. What we did is we sent people with different levels of mistakes in the retirement portfolios that they were investing in. Okay. And they would go to the advisors and say, oh, you know, so far I've been investing in 
such and such manner. For example, you know, some people would um, have behavioral biases that we know many people in the real world have, like, for example, chasing past returns. Mm -hmm. So many people, um, when they try to figure out which mutual fund or which ETF to invest in, they just look at which ones were good in the past. But that's typically not a predictor of okay. who's going to be good going forward, right? And so we had some people come in with a portfolio like that and other people with, say, a much more um, a, a portfolio that's much closer to an ideal portfolio in the sense of textbook finance. So they would have passive funds, um, you know, index funds with mm -hmm. low fees uh, that's you know, what a, a typical finance professor would advise you to invest in. And what we found is that the average advisor would typically advise people who are chasing returns, mm -hmm. right, making that mistake, to keep on investing in such a matter. And that's not good for the client, right? Because the client actually doesn't get the best returns this way. But what we infer is that this is a type of behavioral bias that is good for the advisor because it means that I can basically encourage the client to churn the money quite a bit and therefore generate a lot of fees. Uh -huh. And so we found that the advisor's incentives for their own benefit, if you want, mattered. I should also say, just as an aside, we gave our mock clients also some behavioral biases that are not good for the person, but mm -hmm. also not good for the advisor. For example, some people believe you should always invest in your own company stock. Okay. I mean, not the company you founded, but, you know, where you're working. Where you work. Because people think, oh, I know my firm, I know my firm is good. But Again, textbook finance would tell you that's a really bad idea because you're already really invested in your firm through your salary, right, through your right. retirement and all that. So you want to diversify away from that. But if you think about it, that's a bias that's bad for the client, but it's also bad for the advisor because if your money just sits in your company stock, it doesn't generate any fees for them either. Sure. And so there we found the advisors did give people the right advice saying, look, this is a bad behavior bias. You should go away from it. <laughs> so I'm pointing it out because it shows you that it's not that the advisors just gave bad advice all the time, but that their own incentives do matter. And, you know, I have a final thing that I want to mention with this is actually we did differentiate or compare financial advisors who are what is called fiduciary standard mm -hmm. advisors. So they are abiding by a fiduciary standards rule. That means they have to put their client's interest first. Okay. And we compared those to advisors who are actually just brokers. And brokers in the U.S. only have to abide by a rule that forces them to not defraud the customer. But that's a very low bar, if right. you think about it, right? And so we actually found that the fiduciary standard advisors were giving better advice than the brokers. So how did we get to a place where financial advisors, and particularly brokers, aren't required or even incentivized to give clients good advice? Yeah, it's a puzzling world we're in, right? <laughs> you would think it's a no-brainer that we should make sure that financial advisors indeed give good advice and take the clients first. Um, what Historically, what has happened is that customers of different sophistication might need different type of brokers and advisors, mm -hmm. right? In particular, some customers indeed don't need advice. They just need somebody who trades for them or provides them with certain services. And I believe, you know, then what happened is that because 
the regulatory playing field wasn't very well de defined. Right. A lot of um, companies adopted the broker rule because it's easier for them to abide by it. Okay. I should also say... If you think about the evolution of U.S. retirement savings, right, even just, say, 20 years ago, the majority of people would have their retirement savings in something that's called a defined benefit plan, mm -hmm. right? So that your company would invest the money for you and they would have professionals, right, doing it. But we migrated to a system, which is this 401k system or defined contribution, where now individuals are asked to make all their own decisions and choices. In a way, the advice system wasn't really defined and designed for a world where we have so much, so much money in 401ks and then money rolled into IRAs. Because what I we have seen is When you are investing your money in a 401k and that decision is also overseen by ERISA, which is right through the Department of Labor, um, regulates what, what type of advice you can get in your um, retirement money with your company, the standards of the advisors who work with you are much higher than when you're rolling into a rollover IRA. And so that's why this whole environment in the U.S. has become quite confusing to people. So if I wanted to talk to a financial advisor about retirement, what should I look for before deciding who to work with? So what I would look for is, number one, I would definitely try and find somebody who is a fiduciary advisor, mm -hmm. not just a broker. And then I would look and ask them to talk to other clients that they have, or you know, maybe you have friends who have an advisor who they really like, um, and try to understand what are the services that they are providing to you um, and how well they have performed for other clients. And nowadays, it's not just that advisors can help you with which stocks or funds to pick, but also they help you optimize your taxes, make a plan with you right. about how you want to plan for your retirement. Because one thing that unfortunately people also often get wrong is how much they need to save. Sure. I think in many people's minds, the threshold at which they think they should be saving is much too low, especially given the much expanded life expectancy that we all have nowadays. Right. And so many people start planning for retirement far later than they really should. Absolutely. Apparently something in the data that I've seen quite a bit and most professionals will tell you is when people hit 50, then they say, oh, now I need to <laughs> plan for retirement. But actually then you already lost 15 years of uh, good savings right. and also compound interest. Right. So Antoinette, what got you interested in studying personal finance? So for me, it was actually two things. Um, intellectually and, you know, from a science perspective, I've always been really interested in understanding how people's psychology and behavior influence all the decisions and choices they make. And it's very exciting in economics and finance nowadays that we're trying to model the human decisions much more realistically and much more holistically than ever before. And the big data that we have now that gives us so many dimensions mm -hmm. of what people do also allows us to do that. Um, but there's also, a, you know, say more personal level because every Christmas when I would come home to my family, I would look at the retirement savings um, choices that my mom had made in <laughs> her decisions and I would like scratch my head and run to her advisor and tell her like, you, you have to take my mom out of all these things <laughs> and just use, you know, low fee index funds. Um, and so I realized 
even people who might want to do the right things find it really complicated right. to make sense of all these different choices. So you became your mother's unofficial financial advisor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what do you see as possibilities and challenges for using data and analytics in personal finance? Right now, there's a huge rat race, of course, going on that all uh, financial service companies and companies in general, right, are now really trying to catch up in building internal teams, in building this analytic capabilities to mine the data and to compete on all these dimensions. Mm -hmm. And I think on the one hand, it actually means that products will be more and more tailored to our needs, which is a good thing, right? They are trying to send me information and advertising about the things I really want, not some catalogs of stuff my grandma might like, right? right? That then immediately goes into the garbage can, which is also not good. But it also means, and that's what I'm quite worried about, is that the more companies can model our behavioral biases, the more they can use them, right, in extracting rents from us or um, catching us in moments when we're inattentive or when we're not necessarily focused enough on choosing the right credit card, the right mortgage or any of these products. And so that's where I feel good regulation should make sure that the regulatory environment is structured in such a way that products actually are defined to help people, not to just extract rents from them. Ah, oh, terrific. What comes next for you and your research? Um, I guess, you know, you could say more of the same. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about, you know, the work um, that we are able to do and, you know, kind of the great environment, especially at MIT and Sloan. And so we are now doing more work on understanding how, say, the Credit Card Act of 2009 and 10 that changed the environment in credit cards affected the type of choices people make and the type of cards that are offered. Um, but then we, I'm also doing a lot of work um, on other financial consumer choices, such as housing um, and student loans, where yeah. obviously we now see, you know, a lot of people being highly indebted. Right. Well, I'm going to watch carefully when the next credit card offer comes through in the mail to see what they're, uh, what they're saying in their <laughs> brochures. Antoinette Shore is a professor of entrepreneurship and finance here at MIT Sloan. Antoinette, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Antoinette is turning insight to action as scientific director of the nonprofit Ideas42. You can learn more about their work at ideas42.org. Data Made to Matter is a production of the MIT Sloan School of Management. We are committed to bringing together MIT's intellectual resources to help managers invent the future. You can learn more at sloan.mit.edu. If you like our show, please subscribe. You can leave us ratings, comments, and questions on iTunes. I'm Neil Hartman. Join us next time for Data Made to Matter.